We are, we are repeating <laughs> our, uh, in, in our choice of speaker. <laughs> this is not the same speech that you had last year. Word. <laughs> um, if you will recollect, Mr. Lovell uh, took us back into, into Stratford a few years before the present time and gave us some very interesting uh, episodes in his uh, career and uh, a lot about people in Stratford of that uh, uh, particular period. We thought it was good enough to repeat uh, the engagement and have him continue where he left off. Now, uh, uh, his uh, his standard of of, uh, <laughs> of delivery is peculiarly his own. He follows, he follows no no standard procedure. He has the privilege of lighting here, there, and anywhere he pleases. And uh, just to make sure that. Uh, uh, we know what he's done when he gets through. We're taking a tape recording of his speech. That's just to make him feel comfortable. Eh? We did that last year. Mr. Miller did it and uh, got a very fine record of what he had to say last year. And it's now among the archives of the society. So, Harold, someday, 50 or 75 years from now, so they'll play that uh, tape and uh, wonder who that guy was. <laughs> Like they didn't shoot him. <laughs> well, that's, I think, uh, enough of an introduction. I I don't think there's anyone here that doesn't know Harold Lovell. If they don't know him, there's a good chance to get acquainted with him. He's the uh, number one citizen of the town of Stratford. And uh, there has never been anything going on in Stratford from putting the ox cart on the Methodist Church Bridgepool at Halloween to running the Stratford Trust Company that he hasn't had a hand in. Carol, it's your turn. <laughs> Officers and members of the Historical Society in France, then it is difficult to get a speaker for a reasonable sum is proved by the fact that I am here tonight and was here, let me refresh our memory, last year. Of one thing I am sure, no one that was here last year is here tonight. <laughs> Your stamina and endurance are enormous. Good corned beef hash is one of man's sublime blessings and is made of corned beef and potatoes and nothing else. Good corned beef hash is ruined by the addition of ground-up leftovers, carrots, beef, chicken livers, and so forth. These additions change it from an epicure's delight to a dark mystery. And as the good book says, it is good for nothing but to be cast out and tried under the feet of men. You will find many antique leftovers ground up in the hash I am about to give you. My subject will be the good old days and not life in old Stratford. Stratford is 247 years my senior. I won't make you wait till you get home to figure it out. The answer is 74. I have made no effort to stay with the subject and will wander far afield. There is absolutely no continuity. 
Speaking of getting speakers, a salesman told me this story. He lives in a town in the suburbs of Chicago. They had a drive on for an addition to their library, and hearing that Mrs. Roosevelt would be in Chicago at that time, at the time of the concert, they, they uh, wired her asking her to say a word. She agreed. She said they were $700 ahead with the concert until they get Mrs. Roosevelt's bill for $1,000. <laughs> Members of the Finance Committee, relax. I am here. I am not... I am not threatening and my bill will be less than $1,000. <laughs> if Shakespeare could have been here to introduce me, he would have said in his own words, an old, old man, and he must be talking. Or as they say, when the years are in, the wit is out. Friday, we're all awake. I want to tell you a story of the problems of the Litchfield Historical Society. This spring, I attended a dinner at which one of the speakers was the Henry L. Shepard of Hartford. He is an officer of the Litchfield Historical Society. Some 25 years ago, someone left a massive iron-studded and padlocked trunk to the Litchfield Society. This was put in the cellar and forgotten. This was opened recently in ancient gold coins, French, English, and German, to the value of some $20,000 was found in the trunk. I wrote him a letter to ask him what to, how they handled it, and this is his letter. Last Thursday, I inspected the old gold coins that recently were found in an iron trunk given to the Litchfield Historical Society 25 years ago. They appear to be worth many thousand dollars. The Litchfield Society Charter contains, uh, we ought to listen to this, especially on the Acquisition Committee and so forth. The Litchfield Society Charter contains a provision to the effect that no gift accepted by it will be sold, exchanged, or otherwise disposed of, except with the unanimous consent of the Society's officers and the donors. The donor of the trunk is dead. <laughs> the old coins, because of their value, are kept in a safe deposit box and thus do no one any good. The president of the society last week gave me permission to be confirmed by the board to bring a suit in the Superior Court on behalf of the society in which the Attorney General of Connecticut will be named as a defendant. In the action, I plan to seek authority to sell the old coins on the grounds that, first, despite their antique character, they are nonetheless money and can be converted into dollars just as could any other foreign sum, any other foreign money. Inasmuch as the society was unaware of the contents of the trunk at the time it was accepted, it cannot be said to have bound itself to retain any particular item contained therein. Suppose the trunk had contained obscene or other illicit matter. Third, the doctrine of Cypress should be applied here to afford the greatest public benefit. Cypress is a, a, whereby the judge of the Superior Court can, uh, if, at his discretion, for the benefit of a greater number of people and not to cause undue injury, can change the wording of a thing like this. I hope your charter does not contain any provisions such as ours. Other societies, historical societies, have problems beside our own. The good old days. The good old days when it was easier to drag a dead horse or cow to the river at low tide and let high tide float it away than it was to bury the carcass. How many here remember the hundreds and thousands of green-headed horseflies they used to have? That was the reason. <laughs> the good old days. The good old days when an asthmatic could, be in, could lie on a feather bed and mattress and pillow and slowly die because they were allergic to feathers and allergies were undreamed of. The good old days when about 1910, a local doctor's wife begged me to rush and pick up some of his tools and rush them to the doctor's. 
she was operating on a woman on her kitchen table for acute appendicitis. It may have been the first appendicitis operation in Stratford. She died as I entered the, kit the kitchen door. She left seven children. The good old days when the factory working hours were from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. seven days a week. If you suffered an accident on the job, it was your hard luck. The trolley accident at Pecksville Bridge at the turn of the century killed 29 people. Within 48 hours, every family of the victims had signed a release of all further liability against the company for $1,000 a victim. And the trolley company was solely and entirely to blame. The good old days when a mentally retired child was stood up in the corner wearing a dunce cap when the teacher should have worn the cap. <laughs> every town had a poorhouse. And many of the saints, guiltless of any fault except the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, languished and died in these institutions. The local health officer wore a monster's hairy overcoat made of a buffalo robe. He would, he would nail a scarlet fever sign on the door, keep on the overcoat, and visit his other patients, impartially giving the germs to sick and well alike. <laughs> the miracle of the times were that anyone lived to grow up. Incidentally, the health officer kept his contagious disease keep out signs in his unlocked barn. A middle-aged spencer, spencer, who thought all boys were monsters, and should be parboiled, had their 100% enmity. Her neighbors were shocked one morning to find that, according to official notices pasted on her front door, she had scarlet fever, typhoid fever, diphtheria, and the bubonic plague. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cargill was a fine doctor. He was a Lord Chesterfield of the medical profession, frock coat, striped pants, and gaited jar collar. He died of peritonitis because his doctor, a bridge porter, when told by Mrs. Cockrell that the intense pain of appendicitis had stopped, said to her, he'll, he'll be all right, I'll get over tomorrow and see him. He wasn't all right. They used, uh, when the appendicitis was at its best, they had a, I remember this as a kid, an a ode to an appendicitis germ. It read, uh, I was a happy little germ so snug within my man when evilly I learned to squirm as only unregenerate germ or naughty microbe can. They took me from my resting place and put me in a jar. And now I've fallen far from grace. I've gone the alcoholic pace. I've pickled, yes, I are. <laughs> at a big club outing at George Smith's restaurant in Mil at Milford Point, Dr. Carver was present. Also, Mr. Frederick C. Beach, editor of the Scientist, Scientific American. He lived at that time in what is now the Westmore Hospital. Mr. Beach built the first mile of New York subway. He was an inventor and a scientist and so forth. He had plenty of money, was painfully honest, but bills were considered an annoyance and thrown aside. Stiles Justin was a master of ceremonies at the, at the outing. He told this story, which you may all have heard. Mr. Beach had a servant, Mary, who occupied a room on the third floor. Mrs. Beach called Dr. Cogdell and said Mary had been in bed three days and would he visit her. Dr. Cogdell arrived and Mrs. Beach led him up to Mary's room. He inspected her in every way and could find nothing wrong. She would not talk. Finally, the doctor said, there's nothing wrong with you, Mary. Get out of that bed. No answer. Get out of that bed. No answer. On the third get out of that bed, she said, doctor, I won't get out of this bed till I get my money. <laughs> the, the doctor stood there in deep thought and finally said, push over, Mary. 
In the 1890s, it was a boy's paradise. Nature was much in evidence and very kind. In winter, we speared eels through the ice and caught perch in the pond. In spring and summer, wireless varicots on the banks of the creeks of the rivers, blackberries and blueberries, crabs were in unbelievable numbers, bluefish, flatfish, dragon bass, yellowfin, blackfish, and perch. The shad runs were phenomenal. In season, the river tingled them. The boats pulled up at the docks at daylight loaded with shad. Buck shad were 10 cents and rose shad were 20 cents apiece. When the little bluefish arrived, Barnes docks was a boy's mecca. It was a notorious saloon, had a woman bartender, and paid not the least attention to law. It was a training camp for the prize fighters of that day, and they were just glorified bums. As for the small boy, one of the side attractions was that if he could yank a small bluefish out of the water so hard that it would sail over the saloon, Captain Brown would give the boy a bottle of pop. Bond's saloon was notorious plus, and yet so times take the edges off history that someone in sublime ignorance suggested the name John Bond High School to our now most deservedly named Frank Scott Fennell High School. One Mr. P, who lived in the vicinity of the saloon, on a Sunday, took advantage of Barnes' defiance of the Sunday law and got drunk. <laughs> and got loaded. Oh. His wife, a hundred, well, 180-pound Amazon, gave him a feeding, then took up an axe and started for the saloon. She chopped up the bar and the furniture and broke up the bottle. Barnes was helpless. He couldn't call the police as he was illegally open. And Mr. P was person unknown Greta and not allowed the doors of that saloon any longer. <laughs> However, he became drunk somewhere else on a Sunday. Mrs. P did not give Barnes Saloon the benefit of the doubt, but again she took a rack and wrecked the place. Thereafter, her Sunday guard was stationed at Lockwood Place and Stratford Avenue. If Mrs. P came up over the horizon, the saloon was frantically closed, barred, and barricaded. <laughs> we often fished off the dock at daylight. One of the sights would be the river literally packed with whitefish or Manhattan. Then the triangular fins of sharks would appear as they tore into the whitefish. One of these sharks went aground on the short beach flats on a dropping tide. An oysterman, after a long fight, killed a fish. It weighed 700 pounds and was hauled up on Bond's dock for public inspection and pictures. After being in the sun a week, they allowed me to saw out some of the three rows of teeth. I remember sawing and gagging. <laughs> it was no Chanel number five. <laughs> Incidentally, Captain Bond loved eels and made a standing bet that he could eat any eel of any size. One eye clock with netted one that weighed 9,014 ounces, and Bond lost his bet. <laughs> Deer were common and small wildlife abounded. Squirrels lived in the woods only, never in the residential area. The chestnut tree bite and the cutting of the walnuts drove them from the woods. It certainly agrees with them, as the squirrel population must be 20 times now what it was 50 years ago. A fine buck was taken off the steel spikes of the gates of the old congregational cemetery in the rear of the library. They hurried dash through and all made the leap but the buck, who died on the picket. Later, a buck chased by dogs crashed through the base of windows of Packard Hall. After a wild chase, at one time he stood on the top of the piano, he was tied up and later released in the woods. Always there were excursions for snakes and turtles and crow's eggs and young crows. The crow challenge was strong, as they are uncannily wise, 
and build their nests in the almost inaccessible tops of huge pine trees. A piece of doggerel at the time describes sometime what could have happened. I wish I was a crow's egg. I wish I was a bad one. I wish a boy was climbing up a tree. He'd climb and climb and mad he shrieked, I have one. I burst my shell with horrid smell and cover him with me. <laughs> the swimming hole for the Stratford Center Territory was in a bend in the Ferry Creek, about 500 feet west of the present Stratford Laundry. There were no floodgates or pipes on the creek, and the tides rose and fell, and it was fairly deep and clean. This had been a swimming hole for generations. And for generations, the town fathers had received complaints about the unchaste bathing suits used. It really wasn't the boys' fault if the present chaste bikini hadn't been invented. <laughs> On one occasion, when I had dressed, the village dude, ten years my senior, threw me in the clothes and all back into the creek. I swam ashore, got a handful of soft mud, and hid in the bushes and waited. When he was pulling his clean white shirt over his head, I delivered the mud <laughs> and fled for my life. The next time I saw him, his dead body was being carried from a barn at the Pecksmill disaster. He was killed there. One hot summer day, a small group coming from the swimming hole killed a large flat-headed addict and carried it in triumph with him to East Broadway. There was a single trolley track on East Broadway that branched to two tracks, and there was an electric switch in front of Mrs. Judd's house. The switch was operated by the motorman, who by turning the current on and off through the switch, he could hit the switch to the fair rate of speed. Some bright boy had the brilliant thought of getting rid of the dead snake by putting it on the switch. Those sweet dreams of youth. <laughs> the group was 100 yards away when an eastbound trolley hit the switch. With a terrific crash, the trolley shot across the road and the sidewalk and assumed the condition of inertia on Mrs. Judd's front lawn. <laughs> no member of the group returned to investigate. Rather, they disappeared like a summer dry pound. <laughs> Several boys who had tossed all night was greatly relieved to read in the next day's Bridgeport papers the story of the accident and that how contrary to nature it was for a large snake to make its home underneath an electric switch on a traveled road. <laughs> Incidentally, I have the honor of being the only living person who was ever who was ever bitten by a snake while playing baseball at Seaside Park. <laughs> Reverend Arthur Shirley lived on East Broadway. He was a congregational minister and truly one of God's noblemen. He tutored Yale students who were behind in their studies or suspended. They were the sons of rich fathers, and generally the trouble was too much money for rum and gum. One of the suspended students was one George Bolt. His father was manager of the Waldorf Astoria in New York. He owned two St. Bernard dogs, Romulus and Remus. Romulus weighed 185 pounds, and Remus weighed 189 pounds. I was hired to feed them, clean up the pens, and I cooked the fish washed tubs full of meat once a day. They were fed daily. Every time I entered the pen to feed them, it was disastrous. They showed their appreciation of my visit by jumping on me. And down would go 85 pounds of boy, bones, meat, and dish pan, under 374 pounds of dog. <laughs> One late spring day, Yale defeated Harvard and the boat races. Six of the students went to Hanson's store and bought a stock of large firecrackers. They celebrated the victory by throwing the firecrackers out in the road, whereupon two constables approached and told them that if they continued, they would be arrested. They went into a huddle and then went back to the Shirley house. 
In Stratford Center, for many years, there was an iron drinking fountain at the junction of Church Street, East Broadway, and Main Street. The fountain was about eight feet in diameter, with a sturdy upright in the middle, perhaps two feet deep, and the right height for a horse to drink from. It filled automatically. Fifteen minutes after retreating from the constables, four of the Yale boys appeared, dressed in bathing suits and tennis shoes with their firecrackers and with two wash basins. And they climbed into the drinking fountain. Two of them handled the firecrackers from the center of the fountain and the other two were guards. The constables rushed the fountain and were half drowned. <laughs> if they got a student by the wet bare leg, they couldn't drag him out of the trough. In Union, there was strength. It lasted a half an hour. Soon a crowd gathered who just loved it. They cheered the Yale boys and jeered the constables, who now numbered five. When the firecrackers were gone, the students hopped out of the trough and ran and outran the constables back to the Shirley residence. A week later, the students were paid five dollars each into the town treasury. However, they were the heroes of every small boy. <laughs> On Christchurch Sunday School, it was the custom for the minister to read the gospel for the day, explain it to the students, to the boys and girls, and ask questions, and ask four questions. On this Sunday, at the question period, a small boy raised his hand and pointed up to the gallery and asked, What's up there? When told and more questions were asked for, another small boy asked, How do you get up there? The gospel that Sunday apparently had fallen on stony ground. On another occasion, a visiting clergyman was given a lesson on the curse of drink and stated that if they never took the first drink of beer, they would never become drunkards. In the question period, an eight-year-old boy rose and made this amazing, ungrammatical statement. My father don't drink no beer, he drinks straight whiskey. <laughs> Fifty percent of the people in this room know the father. <laughs> I'm going to be a daisy, and daisies won't tell. <laughs> Up until about 1895, Stafford and all the Wingdoms was magnificent with elm trees. Giants they were, centuries old, some with a spread of 150 feet. Practically every street was made an arch with these elms. Many were planted by the famous Reverend Samuel Johnson. Then came the Dutch elm disease with the elm beetles by countless millions. They were everywhere, closets, attics, under carpets, and unbelievable numbers. In a few years, the glorious elms were stark skeletons with naked branches. There are a few survivors who were not susceptible to the beetles. A man named Sam Wakely was a tree warden, and they called him Elm Tree Sam. He was an ex-sailor and a fearless climber. He was famous to the small boys not alone because he was a human fly, but because of his overcoat. In the wintertime, he wore an old overcoat. The small boys would go up to Elm Tree Sam and pat the old overcoat. It seemed that Sam worked at one time in the boiler room of a tugboat in New York Harbor. One winter day, they picked up an unsuccessful suicide, warned him in the boiler room, and then put him on an ambulance for the hospital. Sam then discovered that the man's overcoat had been left behind, and he appropriated it. Thus, Elm Tree Sam came in possession of the overcoat of the famous Steve Brody, who jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and lived. <laughs> my father died in 1895, and my mother left the three young children took in borders. At that time, the railroad was on road level with gates at all the streets. Then came the elevating of the tracks from the Housatonic River to the center of Bridgeport. This was quite a contract. If they had raised the track three feet higher, 
There would never have been 65 years of floods under all the railroad viaducts. <laughs> Rumor has it that our selectmen spent a winter in Florida, the guests of the railroad company. <laughs> the engineer in charge is a man at least 60 years old, very refined and most gentlemanly. He boarded at our house. My mother was kind to him, and one day he said to her, What can I do in appreciation of the kindness to me? My mother said, I heard you say that you had to cut down that beautiful elm tree near the South Bradford Station. Please don't cut it down. He said, It shall not be cut down. He caused a sandstone wall 12 feet deep to be built around it, the huge, built around the huge front of the tree, and put a railing around the top. To date, after 65 years, this hole is nearly closed. This tree was not susceptible to the Dutch elm disease and is magnificent today and stands a fitting tribute to a vital room. My mother was a fearless woman. Married at 18, she, they left at once the security of New England and took up 160 acres of government land in Colorado. The ratio of rattlesnakes to white women in Colorado at that time was one to five million. The first, she was the first white woman to climb Long's Peak. One of the first suffragettes who marched in the parades in Washington, New York, and Boston and took all kinds of insults and derision. It is hard to believe today that in this great country there was once a time when a repulsive drunkard could vote and the president of Vassar College could not vote. My, my paternal grandfather, I told you this was going to be hash. <laughs> my paternal grandfather was a 49er. He sailed by schooner around Cape Horn. I remember the story. He told me, when they tied up at the dock at San Francisco after a seemingly endless voyage, they saw a new three-story rough wooden building adjacent to the dock. Two windows on the third floor opened, and out came two men with ropes around their necks. The third floor was the courtroom of a newly organized vigilante. The men were guilty of murder and robbery, and were hanged from the windows of the courthouse where they were tried. There was no 12 years delay between conviction and execution in San Francisco in 1850. My, my maternal grandfather, Louis H. Dodd, because of the result of injuries, was not eligible to be a Civil War soldier. His brother-in-law was a George Fellows, and he, he told me this story as a young boy, and it made a great impression on me. He was in the medical corps. At night at Gettysburg, with one thousands of dead and dying on the field with stretches and lanterns, the medical corps searched out for the more desperately wounded for immediate attention. Near at hand, in the pitch dark, a weak, quavering voice, the voice of a dying man, sang faintly, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me in thy powerful hand. He said they stood at attention while the hymn lasted. Uh, if I were to name this story, I'd name it Out of the Mouths of Bays and Suckling. <laughs> a short time ago, I was at my desk at the bank, and lo, there stood a lovely five-year-old girl with her dainty chin hooked on my desk and staring at me. All I could think of was Longfellow's description of the little girl, we are seven. Her beauty made me glad. I said to her, you are very pretty. No answer. I said to her, did your mother... Bring you here. No answer. When will you go to school? No answer. And then it came. What are you doing here? My daddy has to go to work. <laughs>
<laughs> a newspaper quiz program stopped a woman in the New York street and asked the question, do you live on a budget? The answer was yes. How does it work out? The answer was, it saves me much money. The question, how does it save you money? The answer, every night after the dinner is out of the way, I sit down and figure out how my budget stands to date, and by the time I get it all figured out, it is too late to go out and go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> my grandfather died 85 years ago at a store in the same building as the Bontown Fish Market is in today. He lived on Prairie Boulevard. One winter night, he was sandbagged, robbed, and left unconscious in the snow. This isn't all the way through. There's a lot of paper for <laughs> He was found and carried home. <clears throat> the next day, the sheriff horsed and buggied from Bridgeport and visited him. My grandfather said he knew the man that robbed him and asked the sheriff who will take care of his wife and children if he goes to prison. Said the sheriff, that's their worry. Said my grandfather, that would be my worry, and I will not tell you, and he never did. A chemist, one fattiest peck, lived in a small house in the rear, north of the Memphis Rectory. He invented a liquid rubber that, when injected into a leaky bicycle tire, would ooze into the tiny leaks and plug them up. Under a different manufacturer, it is in use today. He also invented a concoction known as Pex Bitters. <coughs> It's very high in alcoholic content, and if you took enough, it would cure you at least until you had slept it off. <laughs> My grandfather sold chemists back his groceries and often had to take his bitters in lieu of money, whereupon all the numerous grandchildren were doctored morning and night with sex bitters. <laughs> we loathed this stuff as it tasted like the proverbial motorman's glove. Chemist Peck worked on a liquid fire extinguisher. The formula was probably some form of carbon tetrachloride. He also rigged up a two-man pump on wheels. He then asked permission to give a public demonstration of his pump and fire extinguisher in front of the town hall in Stratford Center. Chemist Peck was a brilliant little man, but most, most eccentric and excitable. His friends of his own age called him Bear Peck, which he hated. He wouldn't take it from the boys. Whenever a group of boys would holler, Bear get him, he would drop everything and chase them. On one occasion, he chased two boys, two Stratford boys, through Bridgeport set up Congress Street and right into the old Bridgeport High School. The night of the demonstration arrived. A huge pile of crates, boxes, and barrels appeared in the center of Main Street. Chemist Peck was at the hose, and two young men were hired to carry the chemicals from a 50-gallon barrel which he had placed in the rear of the old town hall. The pump was filled with the chemicals. The fire lighted. The title now should be Butchered to Make a Roman Holiday. What Chemist Peck did not know was that after the pump was filled with chemicals, the members of the Stove Club had replaced the barrel of chemicals with a barrel of kerosene oil. The chemical at first had the fire under control, but when the boys innocently poured pails of kerosene oil into that pump, a Vesuvius exploded on Main Street. Temperamental Peck was a madman, breathing fire and slaughter for all. It was an evening long to remember, and no one, who, no one who could say, I was there, have forgotten it. <laughs> the question was, was, 
deal like long commercials on television? Huh. A sweet young bride answer was yes. When asked why she, why, she said, <clears throat> if it wasn't for long commercials, I'd never get my housework done. <laughs> <laughs> the Boba family had a fruit store situated where Rap Store is now located. There was a driveway on the north side of the building. They stayed open evenings and in season kept a row of watermelons on the outside edge of the sidewalk. A group of boys would be across the street. Silently and most uncannily, a watermelon would detach itself from its comrades and with no visible means of support or locomotion would wobble across the sidewalk and disappear in the driveway. The secret was this. When John Park was a Robin Hood, an archer, he was in the dark driveway. When he received the all-clear signal from his pals across the street, he shot an arrow with a wide iron barb and a fish line attached into an unsuspecting melon and a piece of his arm. A young woman known as Betty did an advice to the loved one for a Cleveland newspaper. She published a book of the strange, weird letters that she received on her asses. <clears throat> Here's just one. Dear Betty, I am 69 years old and like to go out with the girls. When my wife sees this coming on, she hides my false teeth. What should I do? Sign upper and lower. <laughs> the answer was, dear upper and lower, your wife is your best friend. She wants to protect you. She doesn't want you to bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> The night before the fourth was really a game played between the town constables and you all the way across the country. There was no vandalism unless you could call hauling a bawling cap into a church belfry vandalism. It was more or less a contest of wit and the one time in the year that it was okay to attempt to outdo the authorities. On this particular year, about 1902, a group of six young men met and planned to ring the school bells and the three church bells. In itself, there was no harm in it. If they had left the billings open, there would have been no incentive. On this year, the group went into great detail, held rehearsals, planned lunches, and had ropes in the belfry and so forth to tie down the skylight. It was figured that we were caught, we would be in serious trouble. So we asked Leroy Lewis, the son of millionaire H.J. Lewis, and Elliot Cogsley, the son of the famous and powerful Dr. Cogsley, head of the Board of Education, to join the group. Unknown to them, they were to serve as hostages. <laughs> Our plans were so complete, and we were so cocksure of success, that we veiled an unsigned postal card to the deputy sheriff's stag, notifying him that all the bells in town would ring. At 6 p.m., hours before the sheriff's suspected action, there were two boys under each bell with a skylight rope down with blankets and with lunches. About 9 o'clock, the astounded Constables discovered that each belfry was manned and that they could not get to the belt. Something went wrong at the center school, and the two boys in some way escaped, whereupon the late Chang Wheeler and another constable took over the belfry. The only way to get up or down was by a long ladder inside the tower. About 11 o'clock, the boys discovered this and took away the ladder, and there was no way for the constables <laughs> to get up that... <laughs> to get off that exposed platform unless they jump. <laughs> Dr. Lewis lived two houses away. He had the first incubator in Stratton. It hadn't hatched. 
<laughs> and his son offered 250 rotten eggs to the small crowd who were enjoying seeing the constables trapped on the platform. <laughs> they shelled those defenseless constables in the dark with those eggs until they begged for mercy. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't funny then, but Chang Wheeler had many a laugh over it later on. I was under the message bell with the late Harry Yates. The constables got under our skylight, but had to work from a ladder nailed to the wall. They couldn't get to the belfry. We had our lunch, laid on our blankets, and waited for midnight. About 11 o'clock, by a strange coincidence, a barn caught fire a mile away west of the, of the Methodist Church. There was no alarm system, practically no phone, and the unwritten law was that the nearest church bells would sound the alarm. What to do? Civic duty won, and we rang the alarm. <laughs> we climbed down, and thinking that all had gone to the fire, clambered out of the back window of the church. A 200-pound constable dropped on me, dangling from the windowsill, and led me to the lockup. A crowd gathered around, and to console me, sang barbershop music. The favorite was, in the prison cell I sit, thinking, Mother dear of you, with a wife and happy home so far away. At midnight, the Episcopal bell rang madly. I had an uncle who was a constable, and he said, I'll get your company and tore down Main Street on his bicycle. <laughs> In 20 minutes, he came back with another constable and manna from heaven escorting Leroy Lewis and Elliot Carson. <laughs> so, there were, so now there were three of us in the cell, and in the prison cell I sit was being butchered for the tenth time. <laughs> then the wisdom of our hostage plan began to work. The enormity of keeping the town's only millionaire's son and the all-powerful doctor's son in the cell began to soak into those constables' minds. About 1.30, we were released. Two days later, we appeared in court. There was a feud between the judge and deputy sheriff's side. And when the judge ascertained that we had sent a notice to the sheriff, and then the sheriff had not been on his job enough to stop the outrage, he took a few sharp cracks at the sheriff. <laughs> well, we took a judicial scolding and were admonished to go thou and sin no more. <laughs> the following story, uh, the only reason I can tell this story is because it, was, it has a good background. <laughs> the following story was told during a recess of members of the clergy of the Episcopal Church. This should take the curse off. There were two partners. One of the fiery, quick-on-the-trigger type, and the other is the phlegmatic, easy-going type. They were having an argument with a concern of source of supply, and the fire-eating partner said, they can't do this to me, I'll tell them, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. The easy-going partner said, don't send that letter until I see it. In due time, the letter was handed to him. He read it slowly. Said he, pretty strong, pretty strong but there's no excuse for your atrocious spelling. <laughs> What's the word of my spelling? Said the easygoing partner. Well, you have two S's and bastards and you left the E off loud. <laughs> During the last... <laughs> During the late hot battle relative to changing our form of government from council to 
song mayor type and i'm very happy to say that the song mayor type was licked at least for now and i do hope if it comes up next year that each one of you gets 10 votes to vote against any change in our present government a man came to me for advice he said i'm a democrat he had a slight rope and a taxpayer i think we have a fine government wonderful schools fire and police department roads and so forth what can i do to help keep what we have i told him write a letter to your favorite newspaper it can't be vindictive or slanderous it must be your cool-headed opinion and you must sign your name he said i'll do it two weeks later he came in and said i wrote the letter just as you said and they wouldn't publish it i asked him did you write such a letter as i told you about he said yes the only thing they might have criticized he said was the last line the last line read fight your dirty irish fight <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the last of the warmed up hash thank you all we're greatly indebted to mr lovell for the entertainment he has provided for us and uh, I'm sure that uh, a repeat performance was well in order. <laughs> I think that concludes our program for tonight. Thank you all for coming, and uh, we look forward to our next session, which will be in September. Meeting stands adjourned.